Warning, Tongue and Geek contains heavy spoilers. If you haven't read, watched, or played the content being reviewed this episode, know that we will definitely spoil major plot points. Also, this show isn't for kids. We use words like and and it would take too much time and effort to edit them all out. Please don't tell our moms. lovely listeners, and welcome to Tongue and Geek, where two more white guys on the internet give their unsolicited opinions on all things geeky. I'm inspirational author and international phenomenon, Isaac. And I am also inspirational writer and sometimes recipient of celebrity likes on Twitter, Tyler. You are also an international phenomenon. We're big in India. Big in India. We're big in India. Hello, India. Uh, and today we're revealing a couple of things. We're doing a summer double feature for those beach vibes with uh, a couple of movies about the sea. Uh, As summer is pretty much over, so... Yeah, we still got them about. You're welcome. Yeah, ki- kicking it off on the end here. We've got Deep Blue Sea, the 1999 sci-fi horror film directed by Rennie Harlan, and The Sea Beast, the 2022 animated adventure film directed by Chris Williams. Tyler, which one do you want to start with here? Oh, that's what I was going to ask you. We got we got some cookies and cream here. We got some mm. peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. We we got the yin and the yang. One, an R-rated action-adventure horror film. The other, a family-friendly CGI animated feature film. Um, I guess because I'm more excited to talk about myself, um, we'll get the sea beast out of the way first and then move on to deep blue sea. Oh, we'll get it out of the way. Okay. Any background on sea beast? Um, kind of a little bit. I did the bare minimum. Okay. What's Um, the bare minimum? I know that it was directed by, I thought I had his name in my notes. I just said Uh, it. (laughs) I just said it. You did, but you know, I wasn't listening. I don't listen to your intro. I hear it every time you do the pod. (laughs) Isaac, it was directed by the guy who directed Big Hero 6. Okay. And and Bolt, of Mm -hmm. all films. Chris yeah. Williams, yes. Yeah, Chris Williams. I knew it was something uh, generic like that. Yeah, white guy name. Um, yeah. Based on his previous filmography, he co-directed Moana as well. So, mm-hmm. Based on his filmography, I like Big Hero 6 okay. Bolt is also okay. It's fun. It's fun. It's yeah. cute. But like with the Sea Beast, this is like top tier, high echelon American animated. This film. is his peak. This is definitely where he's hit his top so far. This should have gotten like streaming has its place. We all love streaming for various reasons, but every once in a while there's a film that hits straight to streaming where I'm really like, man, this would have been great to see on the big screen. Seabeast mm-hmm. is one of those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God. They should have they released it in theaters because it's gorgeous. Yeah, I think there was a limited theatrical release. Maybe there was. I think so. <laughs> I I'll, wish I would have knew about that. Double check. 
sea beast. Continue with your backstory or your background or whatever the fuck you don't ever do while I look this up. <laughs> well, I guess I could summarize the plot okay. a little bit because it's it's your it's your how to train your dragon template. Yes, very, very much same. so. Yeah. I really haven't heard much negative about this, but I guess if you want to be cynical about it, you could just say, oh, they're just ripping off How to Train Your Dragon, but with the ocean instead of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the general broad strokes are the same. Yeah, it was released um, in select theaters. But where Sea Beast differentiates itself, not just aesthetically with, you know, the ocean and maritime theme, uh, but with the, a lot of the subtext, a lot of the substance... Um, characters, how they interact, and even the relationship that happens between the young protagonist and the titular sea beast itself. Yeah, let's go ahead and focus on this point, because this is like probably the most obvious criticism of the film, is that it is, from a narrative standpoint, just how to train your dragon again. Young, not sort of naive and bright-eyed, wide-eyed child finds a monster of some kind that everyone believes is evil, uh, realizes that it's not, and tries to convince their entire culture that, hey, we should stop killing these things. It, plot point for plot point, a lot of that is the same here. There and is- to be fair, ev- uh, even the um, creature design... It looks uh, a lot like Toothless. <laughs> <laughs> the the red bluster who, who's named red mm-hmm. it is does have a bit of a toothless vibe too it's got so that there's, wide there's, sort of salamander shaped head so it is it is derivative of the highly successful how to train your dragon films mm-hmm. um narratively only the first one really yeah where it makes up for that is how nuanced the storytelling is I hate to, <laughs> this sounds a little neckbeardy, but it's it's a very mature film for an American animated film. Mm-hmm. In that, yeah, there's humor and there's, you know, some comic relief and there's, you know, the obligatory cute animal sidekick, but take away the fact that it's a CGI animated film, this could be a long lost like action adventure film from from the 50s with like stop motion animation mm-hmm. instead of CGI animation. It's the kind of animated film that treats the audience with respect, whether it be a kid or an adult or the whole family. Um, it doesn't rely on, you know, gimmicks or musical numbers at the end <laughs> or oh, what's the what's the term um, when something references something that's out of its time. Oh, like pop culture references? Not, 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 not that, but all, oh, anachronistic. You know, anachronistic jokes and stuff like that. Mm. It's a very, very sincere kind of recreation of, you know, Ray Harryhausen movies from the 50s and 60s and all the way up into the 80s, really, with Glass of the Titans and kaiju films and pirate films and that kind of like pulp mm. adventure kind of stuff. Yeah, I think what separates it the most from How to Train Your Dragon is um, the difference in focus. How to Train Your Dragon, I love both of these movies. Um, I think I wouldn't really want to say one of them's better than the other. How to Train Your Dragon, the original one, the first one, I would say is much more emotionally invested in showing this bond between human and creature. It's a much more emotionally driven film where we start to realize that like Toothless and the entire dragon race, species, whatever, are not monsters. They're just living beings with their own, you know, needs for survival and their own ways of existing. It's very much more invested in getting us connected to these dragons as living creatures that we can empathize with and 
feel like connected to and that's all done through the connection between hiccup and toothless sea beast is more invested in the themes that it wants to explore the more heady themes uh, specifically like imperialism colonialism conquest war historical revision these ideas of like we propaganda yeah we will change the way that we see everything around us and make enemies of anything in order to financially and socially profit off of it. And it really shows how that impacts the characters themselves. Our main antagonist is uh, Captain Crow, who is basically a kinder version of Ahab from Moby Dick. You know, he's out to kill yeah. these monsters because, you know, they've taken his leg or I don't remember if he lost a leg or an eye or an arm. Something it, was his, it was his eye. He calls it his dead light. Yeah, he lost his eye. But yeah, he's got that very traditional, like, these monsters have taken so much from humanity. We need to get back to against them. But he's never cruel to other humans until we start to see the crack show. And it's gradual over the film. Like, he's very kind and fatherly towards um, one of our protagonists, Jacob Holland. And we see that... He's, he's likable. Yeah. He's, he's likable. He's a, so much so that you don't know if he's going to be the villain or not. Like, at first, you might think they're setting him, setting him up to be the villain. And then, as you get to know him and endear yourself to him, you're like, oh, I guess he's not the villain. And then, as the narrative keeps going, he does turn into the villain. And it's, oh, I love Captain Crow, but mm. I'm jumping ahead and I interrupt. No, him, it's, it's, so. it's great. <laughs> um, he's done very well because you never get past the point where you think he's full-blown evil he's not evil mm -hmm. he's been you know he's been lied to his entire life along with most of their culture to believe that these seek beasts are monsters but yeah he is inundated in this culture that's told them the sea beasts are beasts they're monsters they kill people they you know walk onto land and slaughter and we have to go out we have to go out and like hunt them down and kill them to protect humanity and you can see how that's affected his entire worldview. So the movie Sea Beast does a lot more of investigating those themes rather than focusing on the actual emotional bond. I, I honestly, one criticism I have is that the emotional bond between the human characters and the Red Bluster is pretty quick. It basically happens in the moment of a single scene where uh, the little girl, our second protagonist, Maisie Brumble, she saves the ship that she's on from the red bluster by basically cutting a rope that was attached to the red bluster, which was sinking both the ship and the red bluster. Like the red bluster was tied up in the ropes, couldn't swim right. Uh, it was dragging Fantastic the ship down with scene. it. Very, very good, impressive, like high stakes scene. Uh, she cuts the rope and we get one of the most horrifying shots in a film I've ever seen. <laughs> she cuts the rope. She and Jacob fall into the water and you just see the red bluster. Who's enormous, by the way. So much yeah, bigger than a kaiju. Yeah. She's a straight up kaiju. Godzilla sized monster in the water, staring up from the depths of the ocean at Jacob and Maisie in the darkness of the water. And she just has these like this vacant reptilian look on her face as she slides back into the darkness into the darkness <laughs> and it's supposed to, it communicates so much like it communicates this sort of like maybe she's grateful for what just happened maybe she's reconsidering you know maybe not all humans are evil but what it comes off as is 
the not even monkey brain, like our <laughs> our fish brain. That's like there's a big thing in the water and it gonna eat me. <laughs> yeah, swim, swim away, swim away. It's terrifying. <laughs> as much as I love horror, I'm like I don't get scared, scared mm-hmm. hardly ever. And that's that's not like a flex or anything. I just don't have that kind of reaction. I if a, if a horror film was really good, I get disturbed and creeped out more than actually scared. Mm-hmm. And but if something's gonna scare me, it's gonna be something aquatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I did not expect this PG animated family film to genuinely give me like the heebie-jeebies. Oh god! Because they're just in the water and it's pitch black, and you 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 just see Maisie point, and then it cuts to that shot of this giant face just staring at them through the abyss, and it's just like, oh fuck, <laughs> damn, oh. They, they went there because. I could see that generally scaring like younger kids. Mm-hmm. Like I could totally see like your three, four year olds, the parents plop them down in the front of this movie and that shot happens and just <laughs> yeah. start crying because it's so intense. <laughs> oh God, it scared the shit out of me. I watched it with Hannah and she was like, that's terrifying. <laughs> she said that, <laughs> she said that audibly when go. we were watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But uh, what were you saying to bring... Oh, um, the human connection between like human and beasts, um, a little too quick. I guess maybe, uh, but the way the story is presented, I don't think it's a problem. And I think if they like kind of protracted that out, it would, it would literally just be too much like How to Train Your Dragon. I, I like that they give Red, who is the monster if you haven't established that, mm. enough intelligence to just like have this intuition like through her own intelligence and dealings with people to know like when one isn't an asshole. Yeah. So there's just that, you know, that amazement and fascination and love that Maisie has for the monsters and red being intelligent. We don't need that like trust building as much as in something like how to train your dragon Mm -hmm. because the characters are written in a way where that's not, you know, the way the story should go. It's much less a story of like humanity, like a, a, it's much like, this is a bad comparison, but like a boy and its dog and his dog story, <laughs> like one of those where like a young child learns to love a non-human creature. It's much less that kind of story and much more an examination of how do we shape our ideology about nature and about otherness in order to fit our socioeconomic needs, <laughs> because it, it like. The big twist at the end is that the kingdom, I don't remember the actual kingdom's name, but they've basically been lying the whole time about these monsters. You know, there were stories about how the monsters used to come on land and murder and pillage and destroy entire cities. And it was all bullshit. It was just made up by the kingdom in order for them to, you know, kill these monsters and try and go out into the sea, basically wipe them out so that they can go wherever they want in the ocean without having to just bump into one of these things. Yeah, good old imperialism by the way of genocide. Mm -hmm. Pretty heavy themes (laughs) for for a kid's movie, but... But yeah. But it's, it's, it's conveyed so intelligently. Yeah. Because there's just enough peril and violence to sell the danger of the monsters where, um, I mean, a, a savvy viewer, you know, a, somebody who's seen these kind of like a couple of these movies before would know they're like, oh, it's going it's to be how like the monsters, you know, they're not really monstrous. They're misunderstood. And mm-hmm. this is all, you, you know, that's coming. But 
I think you said it well when we first talked about it. You're like, as good as it is, like I kind of wish it was more of a straightforward man versus monster story. Yes, because the action is so good. Oh my god, that and, opening fight against the sea serpent, the Brickleback, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. Like, I want a video game it's, of that. It's fantastic action. Um, and that's what makes animated movies of this type, you know, so exciting is they could put the camera anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, like, the way the camera moves and is placed in impossible positions on the ship or from the uh, beast's perspective and the way it moves as it follows the characters as tentacles swing by and ballasts collapse and stuff like that. And as the monster dives under the water, it's, it's so enthralling. Yeah, and people are just and running around shooting off guns at tentacles and, like, the eyes and stabbing and slicing and getting grabbed and dragged off into the ocean. It's just, like... It's this huge, epic fight scene that shows that, like, this is dangerous work. And, like, the people who are doing this are fighting for their lives. They're not doing this out of just, like, ha-ha, we're out to murder and kill and we're bullies. It's, like, these are genuinely... This movie has a great message. Yeah. Well, not soldiers. They're heroes. And this movie has a great message of you can be a hero and be wrong. Like, that's an explicit mm-hmm. message it makes, and it's a good one to make because you can be a very brave, selfless, kind-hearted, you know, devoted person who's out to better the world and still be in the wrong, much like Captain Crow and the crew of The Inevitable are. Yeah, in a lesser film, it would be easy to make... All of the, because they're quasi-pirates, all of the hunter pirates, um, evil. all but one, you know, just like villainous and, and evil and mean-spirited, but they're not. They're, they're an honorable crew of people who care about each other and believe in their mission because it's, you know, that's it's what they grew up knowing in their history, mm-hmm. you know? They actually, Captain so, Crow gives up the hunt for the Red Bluster in the beginning. They find it. He's been hunting it for years, and they give up the hunt for it because another ship with another group of hunters is being taken down by this other sea monster and they have a code where if we ever see another ship in danger, we're gonna go to it. So, like, they're Mm. honorable warriors. They're good people who are doing their best to, like, make the sea safe for others. They're heroes, but they're in the wrong because they've been Mm -hmm. lied to their whole lives. Which makes it a really powerful story of, you know, deprogramming from, you know, radicalization. Yeah, a militarization, yes. Uh, I hate keep comparing it to How to Train Your Dragon, but How to Train Your Dragon has that moment of, oh, we have to learn, we, we've learned to trust the dragons, but it's more simplified in How to Train Your Dragon. Not saying it's bad, but it's more, it's less nuanced than it's portrayed here in the Sea Beast, where, um... It's more emotionally uh, driven in How to Train Your Dragon. It's not yeah. a big, heady theme of, like, oh, we've been lied to our whole lives. It's much more like, if we sea, take the yeah. time to actually, you know, empathize with these other creatures, we realize that we have more in common than differences. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in Sea Beast, it's much more of looking at how this sort of hatred formed in the first place. Yeah, and uh, another good stroke of you know nuanced writing here is um jacob you know our, our beautiful heroic swashbuckling figure he has to be de- deprogrammed but he's not like spitting hateful you know or mm-hmm. malicious of of the sea beasts he's just you know like 
You know, they're they're the bad guys. You know, they've been attacking us this whole time. It's in the history books. It's what I was raised to do. Like, he's, he's got to shake that a little bit when um, he gets stranded with Maisie and Red. It's, it's less uh, like a hateful person being deprogrammed than a person having their worldview challenged in them, accepting it with, you know... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, I had my points <laughs> far better thought out in my brain than when they're coming out of my mouth. It, it is a worldview um, thing. It's not It's not just emotional. It's like the entire way that Jacob and all these people understand these creatures. It's not necessarily about whether or not they connect to Red. It's more about the fact that Red is a living creature and yeah. they have mm-hmm. not been treating her as such they've been treating her as a an evil force so they don't need yeah, to be that, killed and harvested yeah they don't need that moment where we realize we can you, we can coexist we can love in fact the movie doesn't end with a message of coexistence it kind of ends with a message of leave these things the fuck alone and stay in your lane <laughs> like i think the movie um I wouldn't say it's it's like that. Well, they specifically, just... like, stop adventuring out into the ocean where these things are. Because, like, the whole thing was that they were trying to clear a path beyond this sea into, like, further lands. And they specifically say, we've stopped doing that. Yeah, because that's, you know, where the monsters live. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's so the point, is that... It's saying not- we're, we're going to stop being, you know pillaging imperialists exactly that's what i'm saying is no i thought you meant i thought i thought you were kind of saying it ends on like a separatist sort of no not like a separatist segregation thing it's like that's their territory that's their home we don't take that from them you know, instead of this whole, like, we can intermingle with them and we can, you know, merge in with their culture, like How to Train Your Dragon does and where it combines human and dragon culture in almost a sort of imperial Hey, They sort of, they train dragons, they tame them, domesticate them, basically. But here, instead, it's not, they never tame Red. They never train Red. Like, Red just goes back to her life as well as all the other sea beasts and then hum- mm-hmm. the humans of this culture go back to their own lives and stop going out and hunting these things and stop going into their territory yeah okay that clarifies it because i thought for a second you were saying it, the movie kind of trips into a separationist ideology and i'm like oh i don't whoa i don't know <laughs> how you interpreted it that way <laughs> No, it doesn't fox and the hound it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't doesn't fox and the hound it. Uh, what else to say? We already said the action was awesome, uh, but it's we didn't talk so about good. The scene. Uh, red versus um, the crab. Red versus the crab. Ver- yes, I I was really hoping for a full blown epic kaiju battle, and there's this great section of the movie where Maisie and Jacob are stranded on basically just Monster Island. Some of the some of the best visuals in the entire movie are here too. They 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 spend the night in a giant conch, you know. It's so um, bright and colorful this island is. I just, and I wanted to see I just more of it. Touch that conch. Yeah. <laughs> the big puffy well um, yellow walruses. Yeah, I was going to say those fucking walruses. And the creature design here, like, strikes that perfect balance of, like, being cute and cartoony when it needs to be, but also threatening and holy shit when it needs to be. Yeah. Um, Except the, cra- the crab's just blue. scary. 
Yeah, crabs are just creepy in general. Yeah. We find our, you know, obligatory cute animal sidekick in Blue, who's like, I love how the texture of Blue is just kind of like squeak toy. Mm-hmm. They also just, <laughs> they just, they're like malleable and rubber. I was waiting the whole movie for us to figure out, like, who Blue's parents were. Because, That's exactly like, what I was like, oh, we're never a baby. They, they kidnap a baby. <laughs> was Blue the baby, though? Or, like, is that as big as that species gets? I don't know. I just assume they're all big. Everything and, else is big. And, and at this point, Jacob's, you know, still in his, no, these things are bad mindset. While Maisie's like, I love all sea monsters. So she finds Blue and like, oh, he's our, I never had a pet. Can we keep him? And I just love how Jacob like grabs Blue by the head and hucks him into the forest. <laughs> just <laughs> like a squeak toy. This movie doesn't have much too much humor. It is very serious and grounded, surprisingly, but it, its few moments that stand out are really funny. And then there's this awesome nest of eggs that are buried into the ground, only like the tops are peeking out. Mm-hmm. And they, Jacob steps on them and they all start hatching in these really pudgy yellow ro- walrus things. Yeah. They're basically and just like, orb walruses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they imprint on them and like chase them out of the forest onto the beach and they're like in this like avalanche of yellow walry <laughs> and, and then the giant mother comes out and she's big and she's a threat and they get into the rowboat and they're rowing out red's there but then all of a sudden you know here comes this giant crab out of the sand and then red and the crab fight in this awesome kaiju battle that's just mm, 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 chef's kiss <laughs> it's part homage to the kaiju genre and part homage to Ray Harryhausen movies with those incredible stop motion creatures um, that he's like the king of there's this one movie that I, it's a direct reference to really called um, Mysterious Island and there's a giant crab battle in that where they fight where it fights a couple of people in the movie mm-hmm. it's one of his coolest effects Ray Harryhausen's because he used a real crab shell. Really? For, yeah. So, like, because he's got that real crab shell, like, the look of it and the texture of it makes it look really real in a way that's not hokey. And it's like, man, that's really kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, that that crab fight in the Sea Beast is like a direct homage to that. And I, I loved every second of it. <laughs> this also gets at the heart of what I love about kaiju movies Oh, in a lot of them, it's like there's the monster action happening, cuts back to the people reacting to it. Monster action, people reacting. What makes animated movies so good with this kind of material is that, again, you can put the camera anywhere. You can make it do anything. So, you have the characters on the beasts and yeah. traveling inside their nasal passages <laughs> to, like, <laughs> view their their journey through, like, the the clear lens that covers blues uh, i mean red's nose to keep her from sucking in water like there's so much great world building in this with with animation and, in particular i think especially in connection to what you said about the kaiju we've watched a lot of godzilla stuff together and i've always said that like the human stuff doesn't matter it's at best it's fun and silly but it's never really exactly. relevant to the actual you know monster fights in animation, you can get the humans much more involved in the action because mm-hmm. you don't have to put a because real you actor. You can make them interact as more. Yeah, yep. you don't have to put a real actor on a giant monster and, you know, you don't have to deal with the practical effects side of it. So, I think that's... With the, with the, with the Monsterverse movies, it's, it's a different story because those have the Hollywood budget mm-hmm. and they can do that. But in all the old Godzilla movies, all the old Gamera movies, they don't really interact. In the, some of the later Godzilla movies, um, you'll see some minor interaction, like a character like riding on his dorsal mm-hmm. um, fins. 
But that's about it. Yeah. So this kind of fulfills that desire I've always wanted out of old school kaiju movies of seeing the monsters and the humans actually like interact in a in a scene. Yeah. More. Jacob and Maisie are helping in the crab fight the whole time. They're trying to like actually help Red defeat the giant crab. There's so much good in this movie and a lot of it is like in individual shots like you talked about how they can see through her nasal passages the things like a thin clear film that keeps her from breathing in salt water there's a great scene where they're swimming over like a ship and sea beast graveyard and it's just Mm -hmm. like yeah just hundreds of boats and skeletons just scattered about on the ocean floor and it just shows like the amount of death this war has caused and there's no there's no dialogue they don't ponder about it and talk about it it's just them looking down been a little while since we've had connection issues too but hey (laughs) (laughs) we're hitting we're doing the hits the old classic tongue and geek hits Ah, oh, brings me back mm-hmm. to the old times a year ago. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, great scene where they're looking at the, um, the graveyard scene. How long did you get into your point about the CB's graveyard? Did you realize that we were cut out? Uh, I think I've covered all I really wanted to say about it. Okay. Um, do I need to know how your point ended so I can bounce off of it? There wasn't much. I was just saying it's a great scene that without much dialogue or I don't even if there's any dialogue. And it just shows, like, the extent of this war. Yeah, and um, that's a good segue um, to uh, one of my favorite moments. Um, And it also ties into telling the story without words. Visual storytelling. Uh, You know, film is a visual medium. Um, All of the spears that Red's back is riddled with. Mm -hmm. And... Like that kind of just like tells the whole kind of like the uh, the graveyard. It just kind of encompasses the the themes and, and story of the movie. Just like uh, Red can like represent basically the, the entire conflict because you know she's like the one that got away. She's the biggest and the scariest and the one that has been conquered. And like every spear, like there because there's like dozens and dozens of them. Every spear yeah. is just like kind of like a notch in. In how long this conflict has been, and Maisie just go about just goes about taking every single one of them out of her back yeah. one by one until finally Jacob comes and helps. Yeah, which is kind of like you know visually representing the um, the healing or the understanding and the trust that can happen between the two you know species with uh, with some work and some time. Another scene that I love is when they finally get to. That one island where they were basically trying to, you know, get to the whole time because they were on a deserted island with the monsters and they said, hey, this island here is the closest one that we could get to at the closest port. If she can take us here, we can get back to civilization on our own. So, like, while they're on their whole journey with Red, um, they're trying to get to this island. And when they finally get there, they are they're about to say their goodbyes. And then Red just turns and sees this huge, like, kingdom ship. That had been sent out to kill monsters. And she instigates this fight. Like she mm-hmm. she, she could have. They're like Jacob and Maisie are trying to get her to go away. They're trying to like run her off. But she instigates the fight. And in doing so, she endangers Maisie. Maisie almost dies, which shows that Red and the Sea Beasts aren't blameless. Like they are violent. They are defending themselves. But, like, they're not blameless in the sense that, like, they have been 
exclusively victims here. Like they have, like the war may have been started by humans, but the monsters have certainly taken lives in return. It keeps it from being just oh, humanity's evil and always slaughtering and they're only the bad guys and like the, the sea beasts have never done anything wrong and makes it recognize that like violence is met with violence. It's, it's a circle of violence. It breeds more violence. The necessity of defending oneself corrupts oneself. Mm-hmm. It, it gives through Red, it gives the Sea Beasts themselves like more agency and mm-hmm. makes Red more of a character. I think with a lot of movies like this, and uh, by like this, I mean giant monster movies, kaiju movies, it's hard for some people to, as much as they might fall in love with characters like Toothless and stuff like that, like it's, it's hard for people to see these characters that aren't human as like full characters mm-hmm. and more just like cute objects that the story's told around, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you bring up a good point with her instigating the fight with that new ship because that's characterization, you know? That's not just, like, something, you know, to move the plot forward. Yeah. That tells you more about the character of Red, the sea monster. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she makes that decision. She sees it and she's, you know, she's angry, you know? (laughs) She's been hunted her whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's this new big weapon that they're coming at her with. You know, she's. I think she's also being a little protective of the humans, even though um, she puts them in danger by trampling toward that ship. I love how it's not even a fight because earlier they establish, oh, there's also like subtext of, it's not even really subtext, it's text of just how, you know, the pro- proletariat just shits on the working man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> they, they set up this whole hunter class to like specifically hunt down these monsters and they've gotten really good at it. And then they're like, hmm, these hunters have gotten more recognition and fame than we want. We're going to make our army the new hunters so that we look better. And like, the hunters are like, you guys don't know what the fuck you're doing. That big-ass ship you have in the water is going to fall over the first time it blows those cannons. And I, I said that wrong. I said proletariat shits on the working man. I meant bourgeoisie shits yeah. on the pr- opposite. Shits I knew what you meant. Okay. Well, I I get, watched like the one comment we get that's not on the RRR yeah. pod. Be like, you, you said the fucking thing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Read a book, idiot. Yeah, uh, Red just sees this new, fancy, amazing, (laughs) (laughs) crown-financed battleship, and she just fucking runs through it. She plows it. She just knocks it out in one go. (laughs) You think, oh, maybe this might, you know, give her a fight, because, like, it's it's huge and tall and has all these fucking cannons. (laughs) Nope, she just runs through it like it's nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. Obliterates and it's thing. um it's it's Captain Crow who ends up uh, capturing her just like he wanted with the help of more modern weaponry um, and a weird sort still- of unnecessary pact with a sea witch <laughs> like <laughs> just sort of out of nowhere they go off to this island and they're like it's forbidden to go to this place and like they're trying to make it out as like dark magic or something out of nowhere and this woman basically just uses poison which is like. Is that the most unethical thing going on here? Is that she poisons the monsters? Like They make her out to be this huge that, evil that, villain, and she's just <laughs> kind of another hunter with a different set of methods. That's an interesting aspect of the movie that I, really, I, I hadn't thought about until now. Because, yeah, the whole time they build her up like she's this supernatural, like, witch character. But she's not. When we finally get to her, she's just like... 
she's a weapons manufacturer. Like, there's nothing... She doesn't use any magic or anything. Mm-hmm. She's not supernatural. She just has technology. Yeah. And, and she, more modern weaponry. And don't get and me like, wrong, it's, she's it's, evil. It's a weird kind of... She, de- yeah. she delights in the fact that her weapons are being used for violence, but, like, there's this, like, sort of, like, they treat her as if she's super malice and so evil, and it's like, you guys have been hunting down these monsters this whole time using weapons. I don't understand why all of a sudden you're acting like this one woman who makes weapons for killing monsters is evil. <laughs> What I'm trying to get at is that within the film, the way she's treated, the way she's talked about and framed is is meant to juxtapose what she is to the audience. Because, mm-hmm. like, you expect, like, a supernatural witch character, but you get basically an arms dealer. Yeah. And I, it's, I, like, thematically, like, what what that's saying I can't quite parse out right now. I'm not sure. Because I haven't quite thought about this element yet. I'm not sure if the film entirely knows because <laughs> like, I, like I like the idea of an arms dealer character in this film but she's so brief and presented in such a like clearly comically evil way whereas everyone else is given so much nuance that it's like it's almost jarring. I, maybe she's meant to like talk about like the industrialization of comment on the industri- industrialization of war yeah and maybe like represent like how the hunters will go like in future generations if this war keeps happening like even though they're they're still annihilating these these monsters there's like that kind of you know warriors respect for them yeah. you know like this could just get like maybe more violent and more horrible once there's more advanced weaponry and like they dehumanize the beasts even more yeah maybe that's what it's trying to say it'll become entirely too efficient yeah maybe yeah, yeah i think that's what it's saying is that it's kind of like commenting on the industrialization of conflict okay and how that can only just make things worse yeah because crow's crew they see it as him basically, you know, selling out his morals and his honor and his code because it makes the hunt too easy. It doesn't represent who they are as people and as and as warriors and as heroes for him to take the easy way out with a poison spear gun, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot, of, lot, lot to chew on in the Sea Beast. Get it, chew? Because we're talking about sea monsters. <laughs> yes. A very <laughs> obvious joke there, Tyler. Good job. <laughs> Well, it makes more sense with our second feature. Yeah, are we? Um, is that all we want to say about Sea Beast? Are we good here? Uh, I mean, do, you, uh, do you have any other major points you want to hit on? Uh, no, let's rate the damn thing and be done with it, so we can move on to our second one. <laughs> okay, um, I really love the Sea Beast. Like, in, a, in on another day, I would be happy to keep talking about it because it's one of my favorite movies that I've seen this year, and I wasn't expecting it to be. So, um, my rating would be. Five dozen yellow bouncy walruses out of uh, uh, that's it. I was also I give it I, I was I give it five use, dozen bouncy yellow walruses. I was also going to use the yellow baby walrus. I had thirty out of thirty-five <laughs> yellow walrus babies as my okay. metric. <laughs> okay, so that's the Sea Beast. Really good film. Lots of good themes and stuff. Go check it out. It's a good one. It's on Netflix. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> moving on to our second one, Deep Blue Sea. Tyler, any background Yay. on this Yay. one? I know you don't. Yay. You're not big on shark films, but if you can give us a little <laughs> bit of detail. 
Now I can now I can make this all episode all about me. Yes, because uh, I don't have much to say about this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, now it's time for Tyler to, to get nostalgic. Tyler's tirade. <laughs> and um I think that this is the second R-rated film that I ever saw in theaters. Um I believe my first one was Lethal Weapon 4, which came out the year prior to Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> and um, why Lethal Weapon 4 was my first R-rated film in theaters wasn't because at that point in my life as a nine-year-old that I had seen the Lethal Weapon franchise and was a fan. Uh, my parents loved it, wanted to see it, and just took me along so that's how <laughs> the weapon four became my first r-rated movie in theaters deep blue sea became my second i'm pretty sure i remember my hype for this movie 10 years old you know jaws my favorite movie has been my favorite movie since i saw it when i was like four traumatized me and then all of a sudden i'm seeing previews for this this big shark movie that's coming out in theaters and it's sharks sharks that's all i needed <laughs> so my dad took me to see it. I remember I remember the theater. I remember the experience seeing it. And I remember being absolutely enthralled, loving every minute of it, and also taken aback by the level of violence and gore in it. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had seen violent and gory movies, but for some reason, I, just, I wasn't expecting Deep Blue Sea to like show mutilations. <laughs> Spoiler warning! In, a, in, in a, this in film, <laughs> a woman gets eaten pussy first by a shark. <laughs> there's a shark, uh, there's a shot where a shark lifts a woman into the air, like its jaws clamped around her waist <laughs> as she's screaming in agony. <laughs> I don't think you need to spoiler alert because anybody who's going to click on this is has seen Deep Blue Sea. Or they were here for um, Sea Beast. You don't know. Or they, or they were here for Sea Beast. That's true. That's true. <laughs> this is directed by Rennie Harlan, who was a, a big name at one point in Hollywood. He His first big... It wasn't his first movie, but his big breakout was directing Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which is one of my favorites and by far like the most slick and stylish mm -hmm. of, the, of the franchise up to that point. Um... He directed big action movies like Cliffhanger and The Long Kiss Goodnight, which also has Samuel L. Jackson in it. And um, he was a rather hot commodity in, you know, slick, stylish. Oh, he directed Die Hard 2, uh, you know, action movies of the period. What I love about Deep Blue Sea is that it holds up. And by that, it mean, and by that I mean a lot of movies that I loved as a kid around this time. I revisit them periodically and every once in a while... Some of them just don't hold up and just get, you know, well, put that one in the graveyard of childhood memories. But in 2022, I still love Deep Blue Sea as much as I did in 1999. Yeah. You, For... know what I, you know what I love about this movie? Go ahead. That it's the most stupid, convoluted <laughs> bullshit I think I've ever seen. And it wholeheartedly just embraces that. Exactly. Exactly. It's... I don't want to say movies like this never come out in theaters anymore, but oh. movies like this with this kind of budget on this scale don't come out anymore. A quick This was made this was made for like 85 90 million dollars and back 20 years ago that was a lot of money for a you know a blockbuster movie not yeah. like fucking 300 million like they're all made quick for Quick throwdown of the premise. Um there's this research facility in the middle of the ocean where they have super high tech engineered genetically engineered sharks mega sharks 
And the reason they're genetically engineering sharks is to cure Alzheimer's. Why or how creating super smart, super big, super strong sharks is going to cure Alzheimer's is never clearly explained. Just something, something brain chemical, something, something big and smart shark, something, something Alzheimer's. That's the whole premise. And this scientific facility is the least prepared scientific facility in all of fiction, which is fucking saying something when we have something like the Jurassic Park franchise. This makes the people who designed Jurassic Park, and I mean all iterations of Jurassic Park, even the dipshits behind Jurassic World, look like geniuses because... (laughs) They have a routine where on the weekends, they run with a skeleton crew. They run with just the handful, bare bones, least people that they can handle running this place. And for some reason, that includes their on-site chef, but not a medical professional at a fucking shark facility in the middle of the ocean. They're completely unprepared for a storm. Everything that happens happens because a storm comes through in the middle of the ocean and literally every object in this facility is breakable by the sharks. The metal doors, the plexiglass windows, everything can be broken by the sharks except for a thin chain link fence that keeps the sharks from leaving the compound. (laughs) Okay, are are you done? <laughs> Maybe for now. <laughs> I think I'll I'll give you the doctor. Yeah, I'll give you the doctor. Uh, not having, I mean, they're all doctors in in that they have scientific doctorates, but not medically. Um, I'll give you not having a medical doctor when they're you know doing a big giant experiment with a forty foot genetically modified shark. But um, I think you're overstating <laughs> i'm not <laughs> how stupid it is it's um, very dumb it's fun dumb but it's very dumb it, 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 it. there is a line in this film for some reason samuel l jackson's in this movie for some reason everybody hates samuel l jackson because he's the guy funding. because he's a because he's a rich asshole he's 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 the he's the bezos elon musk he's not even that big an asshole to these people <laughs> Just kind of asking I know, questions. Like it's just to a be- way to drum up, you know, like you know, the scientist, the pure scientist versus the capital. They're not pure. You know, the <laughs> it's it's that built-in prejudice that the scientific types have against the money people. There is a fantastic line in here where the chef, who is black, says to Samuel L. Jackson. Because Sammy J has apparently a backstory where he was up in the Himalayas doing some kind of research and a bunch of people were killed in like an avalanche. And uh, the the chef looks at Sammy J is like, you went out with a bunch of white folks in the highest mountains in the world where people die all the time. There's enough things in the world trying to kill a brother than that than running around with a bunch of stupid ass white folks. And this man is at a shark facility in the middle of the <laughs> ocean. It's like, what the fuck do you think your job? Obvious. He's just the chef, though. But, uh, played by LL Cool J, by the way. Oh my um, god, I love the chef. I love the chef. He's the best character. Everybody loves chef. He's the best um, character, and he's the only one who deserved to live. Hey, Carter. Carter rules. Carter, um, Carter is an, a superhuman machine that cannot die. He's t- 
totally protected by the protagonist's blood, like shield. He ca- he has total well, plot. There armor. has to be that in a pl- in a movie like this. There has to be that character that knows what he's doing, and it's not just he knows what he does. Man. He's not just knowing what he's doing. He's inhumanly safe. <laughs> he, he swims with these giant sharks and is never in any real danger. <laughs> Hey, he gets harpooned in the leg, okay, in the finale. So he's not completely immune. One time he gets injured. Anyway, like I was saying, um, Deep Blue Sea is kind of that last breath. Uh -uh, See what I did there? Last breath. Um, These jokes are just... Water. water. Goodness gracious, Tyler. You some stretches. Let me know beforehand. I'll warm up. Let me know so I can do some stretches with you. God. (laughs) <laughs> it was sort of the last breath of decently budgeted blockbuster movies that just had these high concept silly premises and just went all in on it. Mm-hmm. This movie wouldn't be made with $85, $90 million. No. It, it would be it, made with $30 million, maybe $40 million. It'd be a sci-fi original. On streaming. Yeah. But – um. I mean, God, this is this is why I go to the movies to see movies like <laughs> Deep Blue Sea, where genetically modified sharks trap and seek vengeance against their, their captors and experimenters. A shark throws a man throws a man in a stretcher at a window to break <laughs> yes, the glass. It's amazing. Instead it's of so just amazing. instead of just ramming through the glass itself, it throws a man <laughs> in a stretcher. It Deep Blue Sea goes all the way. Um, believe it or not, um, the original draft, because one of the writers, uh, Duncan Kennedy, he got um, inspired to write a mo- uh, write the movie because he saw a terrible, horrible, fatal shark attack IRL. Really, and uh, it gave him nightmares. Damn. Of um, being chased down corridors and stuff by sharks. So that's where he got the idea. Believe it or not, the original draft was supposedly even more ridiculous in that it was like more action heavy and had like machine guns and military people Uh. (laughs) and shit like that. So now I think think about how ridiculous the chain of events that kicks off like the, all the action in this movie, a guy gets his arm bitten off by a giant genetically modified shark. A hurricane is hitting simultaneously. They're evacuating him out. He falls into the water. The facility on the surface explodes because the shark grabs him oh my under God. the water, this is- drags the helicopter into the facility, this- and then later they see the shark with the guy in his <laughs> mouth swimming toward their observation window, and it hucks him right into the window, flooding the lab. I forgot. It's incredible. I forgot how explosive this place is. It takes one <laughs> helicopter smashing into something to set the entire facility on fire. Like it just it, keeps blowing up. It like. keeps going for a solid like three minutes straight. Things are just exploding left and right. And all because a shark dragged a guy out of the sky. and this is like the first 30 minutes (laughs) oh i love this movie so i do too it's a very stupid it's so dumb fun i love it (laughs) it's it's well made dumb fun though that's the thing like they didn't they don't production wise they don't half-ass this movie no it's shot it's shot in the water tanks that they shot titanic in Mm -hmm. um it's got real sets real miniatures and the biggest effects, you know, uh, bravo, are the animatronic sharks. Holy shit. These animatronic sharks look fan 
fantastic. <laughs> okay, see, now that one was a pun that I could follow. It was obvious and there. I didn't have to do fucking warm up. I didn't have to go for a jog to find out where that one was coming from. This, this movie, even though, you know, it's got some late 90s, you know, sheen to it. Yeah, the CGI is a bit dated. Some, there are some CGI shots in it that are quite dated, but for the most part, like this movie is still on that cusp where movies like this were made in, in both realms, in the practical and the digital. Mm-hmm. So it's got a great marriage where, you know, all the action and, and, and horror and stuff feels more tangible because it's real people on real sets in real water fighting off real animatronic sharks, which side note. Uh, Will Conti and his effects team did all the animatronics. They used technology and and material and stuff that they used to build 747s to make the animatronic <laughs> sharks like a contained unit. Hey, no wonder they blew like up so move. much. <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> that can that can move on their own, like like a vehicle, basically a self-contained vehicle. They had a hundred. They had a thousand horsepower engines. They weighed eight thousand pounds. They can move thirty miles per hour. Like these things were God. fucking dangerous. You might as well have just like, made the sharks. Basically, yeah. real sharks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically <laughs> real sharks. <laughs> and they they look so convincing. They look so good. Like over twenty years later, like this is like some of the best animatronic work like of all time. And I don't think uh, the movie has, it was mildly successful at the box office. It made a decent amount of money, but it's one of those movies that kind of has stuck around in the pop culture where people, people love deep blue sea. It's kind of, kind of like a newer cult classic, but I still don't think the movie gets recognized for its animatronic. It's definitely not on like the level of Jurassic park and recognition for its practical effects. No. And it should be, I'm not saying the movie is as good as Jurassic park, but the the craft and artistry that went behind the creation of the sharks is just as great as Jurassic Park. And I mean that sincerely, like I'm not being hyperbolic. It's crazy good because I'm such a, you know, scaredy cat of sharks in the ocean. The movie still has moments where it gives me the heebie-jeebies, um, even though it's <laughs> so ridiculous. Um, there's a shark, a uh, shark, there's a shark, <laughs> there's a shark. <laughs> A, a shot early on. God damn it. Where Samuel L. Jackson is getting the exposition tour. One of the scientist characters, like, something, something, and underneath is a world of gliding monsters. And you just see the shadow of the big shark swim past with, like, the tip of the fin barely making a ripple on the surface. And every time I see that shot, I'm like, nope, fuck that. Like, <laughs> I would not be caught dead on this facility. I don't care who I was, how much money I had, or who I was with. Yeah. Get me the fuck out of here now. That chef had to be paid really well to be out on this fucking facility. <laughs> he did not need to be out here, man. Yeah, because, like, he lurked... He lurked God damn it, my fuck, I'm... I, me no talk well now today <laughs> he worked below the surface so he yeah he worked on like kitchen the was third, underwater the third level deck he's down there with a parrot and he's just <laughs> and like i don't want to be looking up for making my omelets or whatever and see like a fucking giant shark eye staring at me through the porthole oh god i want to say one more thing about the chef because he's my favorite character and he's full of stupid bullshit but he's so fun stupid bullshit <laughs> 
his you whole, ain't my bird. His whole thing is that he's got two major character traits. One is that he has a bird uh, that he constantly shits talk with, and it gets eaten by a shark and it pisses him off. And the other is that he is a like super devout Christian who is like dealing with his own <laughs> faith and everything. And like, there's a lot of fun, absurd stuff that you do with this. And but the thing that cracked me up the most, which isn't even I think supposed to be funny, is that there is a line at one point. Where, like, they're talking about all this death, and the woman who's basically the reason that the sharks are super intelligent, she snuck behind the government's back and made, like, all these genetic modifications to these sharks. She's like, I have to get this data, otherwise these deaths will be for nothing. And he's basically, he says, all death is for nothing. And I'm like, my guy, you're wearing a crucifix around your neck. <laughs> a symbol of death. The symbol of Christianity is a man who died for your sins, and you're standing there saying all death is meaningless. Just like I don't think um, the movie meant you're for forgetting that to the be fact funny. That Christians aren't logically, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm, I don't think the line meant for that to be funny, or the movie meant for that to be funny, but it cracked me up so much for him to be standing there with a symbol of the most supposed most important death of all time just being completely meaningless yeah well, we all know your average christian isn't very logical and you know <laughs> we're not gonna so. we're not gonna make this a christian bashing episode <laughs> there's so much more to talk about in this than religion because this movie's not nuanced yes. it's well, not and nuanced. well you could say his faith ends up saving his life because in the finale he's getting chomped by the by the main shark and he stabs it in the eye with his with his cruci- his rather big crucifix crucifix necklace yeah. say. it's pretty intense <laughs> Oh um, boy! Fun fact: um, the main scientist character, uh, Susan. A couple of corrections: um, they don't purposely make the shark smarter. You kind of said that in the beginning on your tirade. That was a un unforeseen side effect. Oh, unforeseen uh, side effect of making their brains bigger. <laughs> yes, and making them vastly more intelligent than your average shark. Susan, Dr. Susan, who was trying to cure Alzheimer's, um, the, the the plot of like, we'll work on shark brains to harvest proteins to, to help cure Alzheimer's. It's, it's silly, but scientists have studied sharks like that in ways, you know, because it was first thought that sharks couldn't get cancer. Turns out they actually can, but there has been like scientific, you know, research done in, in, in that mode on sharks before. So it's kind of sort of got a little pinky toe in, in reality, in science fact. But of course, you know, Hollywood. It's just so stupid. Was, it's when, just when, so <laughs> dumb. I'm sorry. We're making the movie super tests. sharks to cure Alzheimer's. It's just never not going to be stupid. I don't care if there's real world equivalents. That's just so stupid. We made mega sea predators so that we could cure Alzheimer's. Unintentionally, Isaac, it is man should not mention with it's nature. It's five times larger than it used to be, and it's showing behavioral patterns of like a human being serial killer. <laughs> The movie, the movie is at least smart enough to call that out. Everybody gives her shit for being a fucking asshole by making the shark's brains bigger and making them more intelligent. What I've been trying to say is that when the movie first test screened, the ending, the audience has hated the ending because she survived. Yeah. And everybody hated her because she's the reason everybody's in this situation. Everyone dies because so, of her. <laughs> 
They reshot it to have her die, and LL Cool J's chef character was going to die, but they kept him alive because audiences responded to him so well. Hell yeah. So, back in the day, two deaths in this movie genuinely surprised people. Samuel Jackson, you know, he was red hot in the 90s. I don't think he's ever not been red hot, but the 90s was when he became like a the superstar that he is. You have a movie with Samuel Jackson, you figure, you know, he's going to if not be the main hero, he's going to make it out alive. But halfway through, he's given this, you know, this intense speech about how we have to stick together if we're going to make it out alive. In mid-sentence, the shark fucking jumps out of the water and grabs him (laughs) and yanks him down and he gets broken in half like a wishbone by two sharks. Like, that genuinely surprised people <laughs> when when they when they saw that movie like holy shit did that just happen did they just kill Samuel Jackson in that yeah, insane at the ha- way at the halfway point <laughs> it's like oh there goes the movie's biggest star and then at the end Susan you know you f- she's basically the main protagonist you know she's the one who you know her actions are what propel the plot and story you figured you know she's gonna have an arc or whatever where she realizes her ambition was blind and she made massive mistakes and there's a blah, blah, blah. But no, like, <laughs> they're finally on the surface of the facility and they, they need to get rid of the main shark. And, like, she cuts her hand, uses herself as bait. And you're like, oh, she'll probably get out. You know, just in the nick of time, Carter, in all his wisdom and amazing supermanness will save her. <laughs> but no, the shark just fucking eats her. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a second death subversion, like, where you think you know who's going to make it out, and they don't. Oh, it's so, so good. It's so gratifying. You, you, she was you so could knock the movie for being dumb, like, story-wise. I'm not knocking like, it for being dumb. I'm, I'm celeb- not saying you specifically. I'm, I'm celebrating like it for being dumb. <laughs> I'm saying the royal you can knock the movie for being dumb. Okay. But it has touches in the writing like that that make it, that elevate it above just being, you know, dumb, silly shark slock. Oh, Deep Blue Sea. I don't know if I've got anything Deepest else to say. <laughs> like, it's dumb fun. It's just dumb fun. It, Like Tyler said, there is a lot of good practical and some dated but good for the time CGI effects wild shit. The sharks get into this research facility, which is a bunch of narrow hallways and shit. It's all flooding and they're like swimming around in hallways, in a kitchen. Like There's a, there's a whole scene in a kitchen where the chef gets yep. like locked up in an oven. Like there's a Where I still don't know if the shark turned the oven on on purpose or it was an effect of just it ramming the... I mean, because they're hyper smart. So, <laughs> I still cannot figure out if the shark did that on purpose. Trying to cook them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but yeah, I, it's a fun movie. It's a fun it's movie. Effortlessly watchable and rewatchable. Because Eric and I like watch it like every year. Um <laughs> Fun story. We were supposed to watch Jaws for this pod. Yeah. Isaac was gonna give me give me Jaws so he can knock that out of the way. But you know we couldn't watch it together on Blu-ray because we live almost two hours apart, and it's not streaming anywhere for free that we could have shared at the time of watching it. It said the internet said it was on Tubi. Wasn't at the time. Now it is. So <laughs> we'll get back. <laughs> he around gets to on. Jaws. 
I'm like, well, uh, we're not watching Jaws tonight. We're watching another shark movie, Deep Blue Sea. Hope you're ready for it. And <laughs> all week, Isaac's just been waiting to watch a Jaws movie he's seen before, but it's been a hot minute. And we throw on like the second best <laughs> shark movie ever made. Very different thematically, I think, from what I remember of yes. Jaws. It's been a minute since I've seen Jaws, but I feel like Jaws was perhaps a smarter film. <laughs> oh, far, far smarter. Like I fucking love Deep Blue Sea, but <laughs> it's no Jaws. As great as it is, it's no Jaws. Uh, um, but of course, there's like cheeky Jaws references. Uh, Carter uh, takes a, a license out of the shark's mouth in the beginning, and it's the exact license that Hooper pulls out of um, one of the dead sharks in Jaws. The shark in Jaws is 25 feet long, and they made one of these sharks 26 feet long. <laughs> <laughs> Purposely to make it bigger than the Jaws shark. Um, um, Rennie Harlan, um, I, I liked his philosophy in making this. He's like, he's like, this isn't gonna be Jaws, but we want it to at least be able to like stand up with Jaws in some capacity. If it, if it can't be better, make it bigger. Yes, make it bigger so than he, Jaws. So he's like, we can't, we can't do the whole thing of like, well, we're not going to show the shark. We're not going to show, you know, show the monster. Uh, no, we're going to show them and we're and they're going to be the star. So that's what they did. I mean, you're not hurting for sharks in, in Deep Blue Sea because no. they're fucking everywhere. Lots of shark action. <clears throat> and again, a woman gets ate pussy first. <laughs> One of the most outrageous scenes. <laughs> she gets sucked under the water and you're like oh gosh the shark's gonna jump out of the water with her of course she's gonna be all mutilated and everything and Bennett jumps out of the water with her pussy first eating her out <laughs> oh my god oh, so fucking crazy <laughs> oh well I'm glad you had fun I did I had fun uh, anything else about Deep Blue Sea uh, yes, if this is going to be your first time watching Deep Blue Sea, make sure to listen to the end credit song rapped by LL Cool J, <laughs> entitled The Deepest Bluest. It goes hard. <laughs> I fucking love this song. What makes it so good is that he's rapping as a shark. He is the perspective of the shark. That's what the song is rapped from. Oh, <laughs> and, like, it's so adorable. <laughs> The that 90s, man. As a shark. The 90s. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, you know what? Just for fun, I'm going to read some deepest, bluest lyrics. Okay. To make this fun. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. Man-made terror. Hungry jaws of death. Y'all don't cross my depths. I'll pause your breath. I cause you to sink down 40,000 leagues, bleeding to death with no arms and short sleeves. Like, come on. Like, how is this not the greatest song it's poetry. ever written by man? It's poetry. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, Man-made terror. Hungry jaws. Oh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to rap because it's going to be cringy as fuck. But um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Deepest Blue is fantastic. <laughs> Let's uh, let's rate the damn thing and be done with it. Uh, I'll go first this time. I'm going to give Deep Blue Sea two out of three giant super smart sharks designed to cure Alzheimer's. I'm going to give a Deep Blue Sea five LL Cool J playing a chef's. I'm, I'm terrible at making arbitrary. Just cut this part you, out. You I'm gotta, making arbitrary you ratings. got to do them in advance, man. <laughs> I think this shit out beforehand. I don't just jump in with these stupid ass ratings and <laughs> metrics. 
Oh. Uh, Deep Blue Sea rated Jossum by Tyler of the. There you go. Podcast. You can be the you can be the punny one. <laughs> you can make a- it's Jossum. I'm just ripping that off from Street Sharks, another fantastic '90s shark property. <laughs> Speaking of which, I didn't do review review this time. Do you have any recommendations That's- you want to throw out there? Oh God! When was the last time we've done? We do recommendations every time still, don't we? We do basically every time. And you're always <laughs> surprised. You're, all, you're like, always surprised. You're like, I never prepared. I never surprised. thought of when doing recommendations, even though we've been doing this since like episode three. <clears throat> um, <laughs> uh, with the Sea Beast, um, I recommend. Obviously, How to Train Your Dragon. The parallels yeah, are there. You've, if, if you've seen the Sea Beast, you you've would probably have seen, seen it. Yeah. The fucking dragon. Um, if you're not too young to um, not appreciate older films, check out some old Ray Harryhausen monster movies, stop motion, your Clash of the Titans, your Jason of the, Jason and the Argonauts, your um, Sidbad uh, movies that he made, all amazing stop motion creatures that the Sea Beast most definitely homages. If you're looking for more children's media targeted towards, you know, themes of imperialist conquest, historical revision, <laughs> and such, Avatar The Last Airbender, that whole series is about, you know, genocide and war and imperialism and colonialism. Uh, with Deep Blue Sea, oh lord, recommendations. Uh, you, I, I got some, I got some. I'm giving you three. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm stopping you at three. You get three shark movie wrecks. Well, then I won't say Jaws because that's the obvious one. Uh, the uh, the nineties, the mid to late nineties were, um, like I said, kind of the last gasp of these types of you know creature feature animal attacks movies. Mm-hmm. Check out Anaconda, which came out in I can't remember if it was ninety seven or ninety six with Jennifer Lopez and another rapper Ice Cube about you guessed it an anaconda. Did it not want another none? awesome? Unless they had buns, hun. <laughs> Yes, it's about a giant dick that is <laughs> hunting and attacking people. God, how old is that song by <laughs> In now? South America. I'm already old just God, referencing that. Close to a decade. If, oh close to a God. decade now. Oh, I'm just shriveling up. I feel it. <laughs> Future. 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 Um, yeah, Anaconda Rules. Um, another great animatronic-fueled creature feature. Um, Lake Placid. Uh, about a giant crocodile in Maine, The Shallows, which came out a couple years ago. All right, that's a... three. <laughs> nope, I'm I'm still going. Okay. Um, you get one more. <laughs> I'm generous. You get one more. <laughs> no, two more. One more. Two more. One. Spit it out. Spit it out. You fucking dick. Uh, <laughs> You've already hit three. Uh, I'm giving you. If four. you still, if if you want more fun, ridiculous shark thrills, there are. The 47 meters down movies, uh, the first one is more realistic, quote unquote, more grounded. I, I like say. how you bypass the one more um, by using an entire fucking franchise, <laughs> you sneaky bitch. <laughs> is two movies a franchise, though? Can you just call two movies a franchise? No. What is the definition of a film franchise? How many do you need for a franchise? It's a good question. Uh, anyway, yeah, the first one is more more grounded in its in its thrills just about two sisters that are stuck in in the water in a cage with sharks Uh, the second one is fucking ridiculous but it's amazing it's uh basically the descent if you've ever seen the descent with sharks uh the characters are in this underwater cave system with blind cave sharks that they're trying to avoid and what makes it so good beside the 
really effective suspense and terror in the movie, despite it being a silly premise, is that the characters talk to each other through their scuba gear the whole time, but there's nothing in their ears. <laughs> their ears are exposed in the water oh. with like nothing with, with nothing covering them the whole time. So how are they talking to each their other? Their ears should have popped it from matter. the underwater pressure too. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's amazing. Uh oh. And crawl, which is about uh alligators in the basement. You're during done. Hurricane You're, of done. <laughs> You're done. I'll recommend is it the Mega? The Megalodon movie is called the Mega. It's just called the Meg. The Meg. There we go. There we go. Big Megalodon. Big, big, big shark. There you go. That's all you need to know. Based on a book. Uh, sequel's coming out soon. Can't wait. Okay. I think that's going to do it for us. I've got to stop Tyler here before he lists every shark movie ever made. That would be impossible because you have no idea how deep Bunnots the, <laughs> the shark You have been goes. in a mood tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I don't know what's it. worse, the fact that I keep making these puns or the fact that like I don't Half realize that I'm going to make them until they come Half out. Half of them aren't even puns. <laughs> Half of them are huge leaps of logic that you have to, like, <laughs> you have to like explicitly say, that was a joke for me to even recognize <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, God. If you enjoyed this episode, give God, us... God, Isaac, don't bite my head off. Oh, <laughs> Give us a like, drop a comment, and share it with your friends. If you can, uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter <laughs> at Tongue and Geek. That's at Tongue and Geek, all one word. Thank you for listening, and remember, I, I used to be funny, audience. I swear, you're not, not ironically me up. funny either. You're I used cracking. to be genuinely funny. <laughs> remember, don't throw your baby in the trash or the ocean. There's shit or in the there. ocean. Or the ocean. <laughs> Bye.